So we're in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. On Wednesday night, we're going through the Bible uh, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And we are in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you know your New Testament, you know we're working our way towards the book of Revelation, which means we'll have gone through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It will happen. It can be done, Lord willing. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that we have in you, Jesus. And we pray, uh, Lord, tonight, in light of the events that have taken place in Las Vegas and with the hurricanes and all of the trauma and disaster, Lord, that you would move our hearts again to the hope that we have in you. Lord, we pray for, for those that have been so affected by this evil that has been committed. Pray for those that have lost loved ones, the, Lord, Lord, those that were there and the first responders that responded to this event. And so, God, we turn our hearts towards you. We ask that you would really bless our study tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Living in hope. From a biblical definition, hope is a confident expectation of coming good. It's more than a wish or a whim, like, I, I hope that the Rockies win the playoff game tonight. That's, that's a wish, but we're not sure how that is going to turn out. But with the Lord and his character and who he is, we have hope in the Lord. But we are oftentimes living in a day that seems hopeless. When we think about the shooting that took place uh, this week in Las Vegas, there can be just a feeling of, of hopelessness that comes over us. You know, what is happening to our culture and our society where these mass murderers want to one-up each other, you know? 20 years ago or so, we really saw the first mass shootings. And then since then, it seems to be that we've got to do one better with violence and murder. And so many people's lives taken, so many people injured. And it, and it causes us to ask questions. What is, what is our world becoming? You know, when we think of our lives personally, a lot of times we go through our days feeling hopeless. I bet many, if not all tonight, you may be feeling hopeless about some area of your life. Maybe it's feeling hopeless for change, wanting growth in a particular area, but being overwhelmed, wanting God to do a work in a relationship, difficulty with finances, struggling physically. I think the enemy wants us to be in that place of hopelessness and despair. And we're going to read tonight that Peter tells us that we have a living hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because Christ is alive our hope is alive. For Peter, this meant everything. Because of Peter's sin and his denial of the Lord, if Christ was still in the grave, there was no, no hope for Peter. And he's writing to a group of believers that are going through persecution. They're dispersed because they're being persecuted for Christ. They're foreigners, they're pilgrims, and, and Peter's writing to encourage them. So I, I pray tonight that our hearts would be comforted and we would be brought back to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So let's begin in verse 1 of, of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. If you're familiar with the Gospels, Peter was a fisherman, a lovable fisherman from the Sea of Galilee who was called by Christ to leave his nets and follow, which he did. He followed Christ. He left everything and he followed Christ. Another description of Peter would be passionate. He's the kind of guy that always does things 110%. Never holds back. But yet he's also reckless. There's many times with 
his words that he seems to speak before he thinks. And I think that's why we all love Peter. As foot and mouth disease. He's rebuked by the Father on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's rebuked by Christ. Christ tells him, get behind me, Satan. He seems to be a man that has big moments. He has, has big moments for the positive and big moments for the negative. Denies Christ three times there at the trial of Christ. When Christ rose from the dead, he comes to Peter. Peter's fishing and restores him on the Sea of Galilee. Restores him on the shores that he had grown up on. What he was looking for was found at the feet of Jesus. Jesus commissioned him to be the first pastor of the church. And what's different in Peter's life is when he is filled with the Holy Spirit. As Sean taught about the Holy Spirit last week and the importance of being filled with the Holy Spirit, we see Peter being changed. And here he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, one who is sent out by Jesus Christ, that's who's writing the letter. He's writing to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, and Cappadocia, Asia, and Pamphylia. To the pilgrims of the dispersion. If you're taking notes, living in hope first is who we are. Who we are is pilgrims. We're pilgrims. He reminds this group who's being persecuted that you're a sojourner. The idea of a a pilgrim was always somebody who was living temporarily in a foreign land. If you were to live in Mexico or live in Canada or to to live in England, you're going there temporarily for six months, a year, two or three years, but you never intended it to be your long-term home. You'd be a a pilgrim, you'd be a foreigner, you'd be a, a sojourner. And the message is, as believers, we're passing through. We're pilgrims. We're only here for a short amount of time, and that's comforting, and we need to be reminded of the fact that we're pilgrims. There's a difference between being a pilgrim and a settler, isn't there? We're not to be a settler here. We're to be a pilgrim. Always know that we're passing through. It says of the dispersion, and then we have these five places that are listed. Five places and four provinces of the Roman Empire in Asia Minor, northern Turkey, on on the Black Sea. The time frame of this letter is right around AD 64, right before or right after the persecution of the church by Nero. Rome turns on the early church and persecutes it in an intense way, and these believers are living through that time, and because of that, they're dispersed, that they're refugees. Think about how hopeless a situation that could be. Here you are following Christ, living for Christ, and because you're a Christian, you have to flee for your life. You know, it's, it's interesting as we look at this area of the world and Turkey and going down into the Middle East, it's still an area with tremendous turmoil, isn't it? It's still an area where you're persecuted largely for your faith in Christ. And that's who... Peter is writing to, and he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. We have hope based in our identity in Christ of who we are. We're pilgrims and we're elect. It says that we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. We're chosen by God. I'm reading an interesting book right now. Uh, It's a book that got mailed to me. Part of being a pastor is you, you receive a lot of books in the mail. And some of them are worth reading and some of them aren't worth reading. But 
this title caught my attention. It said, 12 ways your phone is changing your life. 12 ways your phone is, is changing your life. One of the things that this book points out is that our phones many times is where people are trying to find identity, where what we post on social media and what we post on Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram, and if someone gets so many likes, then they feel that they're secure. But it's an empty hole because then the next time you've, you've got to get more likes. Now, before you look with too much condemnation, if you use Facebook at all or any of the social media, be honest, when you make a post, don't you go back a few times during the day and say, how did it do, you know? Like, did it get 26 likes or six likes? Or, man, it only got two likes, it got no likes. And, and then, oh, I feel pretty good, it got a lot of likes or didn't get very many likes. And it has all this power over us. And in one section of the book, it, it wrote about this young gal, uh, 19 years old in Australia, and she had half a million followers on Instagram. But she felt completely empty and decided to, to get off social media altogether. It, it couldn't satisfy her. Ultimately, it couldn't form a solid foundation. Another young person had this following that was built on all the new clothes that she would buy and the fancy food that she would eat. And it was all on debt. She didn't have the money to, to buy the clothes and go to these, these restaurants. And so she would post about her meal uh, of sushi, but she wasn't able to, to, to pay for it, you know, and how she couldn't find identity in, in that place. And it really shows something. And I think as a culture, we're missing identity. We're, we're walking around. We don't know who we are. And that results in not having a lot of hope. Not, not a lot of expectation or confidence for the future. And here, Peter reminds them, and he says, you're elect, you're, you're chosen by God according to his foreknowledge. And there's a lot of power in being chosen. If you remember back to elementary school, junior high, those pickup games that you may play or been a part of, I used to do that a lot, and you'd have these football games, and there'd be two captains, and you begin to pick teams. And you never want to be the last one chosen. Or even worse, like, hey, we took Bill last time. It's your turn to take Bill. <laughs> he, he's on your, t- your team th- th- this time. And you, you feel rejected because of that lack of, of being chosen. And we're chosen by the one that really matters. We're chosen by God. And he chose us from a place of foreknowledge. That's what's amazing, is he knew everything about us, and he still chose us. <laughs> that's unconditional love. That's, that's the love of God. So we're pilgrims, and we're elect by the foreknowledge of God and the sanctification of the Spirit. What's sanctification? To be set apart for God's purposes. So the Holy Spirit's always moving us to be set apart for God's purposes for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, we have a few occasions where the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled. One, for the covenant in Exodus 29. When the covenant was given, there was a sprinkling of blood. Also later on in Exodus, we find the sprinkling of blood for the priests, showing that they were set apart. And then the leper, when he was cleansed, was sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice. And we've been sprinkled, we've been cleansed with the blood of Jesus. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
from the dead. Blesses God. Peter thanks God that God through his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. So we've seen who we are. Now we see what we've received. And this all provides hope, causes us to live in hope. And the first thing that we've received is a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ is alive, so our hope is alive. What are you putting your hope in? What is your hope resting in? If it's anything short of Jesus Christ, there's the potential for that hope to perish. But as long as our hope is in Jesus Christ, our hope can never be defeated. Again, remember, Peter's writing this. He failed, he sinned, he denied the Lord. If Christ died and didn't rise again, Peter would be dead in his sins. But because Christ is risen, he's forgiven. And that's true for us tonight, isn't it? If you know Christ as your Savior, you are forgiven because Christ is risen. You're a new creation in Christ. All of our sin, past, present, future. Think about that for a moment. Past sin is such a bummer. Present sin's even a bigger bummer, right? It's like, oh man, look at, look at what I did this week. Ah, you know? Future sin, that's discouraging. I know I'm going to have future sin, right? But it's all buried in Christ. It's paid for. And we're risen. And so we can stand knowing that we're forgiven by the Lord. Sin didn't have the final word. The power of sin has been broken. We have living hope knowing that, that the power of sin is broken in our lives. Death doesn't have the final word. We can face the the grave with hope knowing that we have everlasting life. And I think this is important at this juncture. You know, it's tough to find the words and try to process when we see things like the shooting taking place in, in Las Vegas this week. But that shooter didn't take our hope. He didn't take our hope. Christ is still alive. Christ is still risen. And the enemy would love for that shooter to have been able to take so many lives and injure so many people, but also to take hope of believers and cause us to live in panic and cause us to to live in chaos. There had to have been loss of life as these believers were persecuted and fleeing for their lives. They faced tragedy. They faced difficulty. And Peter's reminding them and saying, your hope is alive. What is it in your life that's causing you to lose hope? And you go, man, it is dismal of the current events that are taking place, but it's more personal for me. These are the struggles in my own life and relationships and and finances and just daily life and the the daily grind. And, And here God is saying, notice again, it says begotten us again. It's for hope to be reproduced in our lives, hope to be restored in our lives. I'd love to be able to tell you tonight that I live my life in a constant state of hope, but that would not be true. There's many times where my hope needs to be renewed, my hope needs to be restored, or I get my focus on the wrong things, I get my focus on the temporal things, And I got to get my focus again on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That hope is based upon the resurrection of Christ. And then verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, received in heaven, reserved in heaven for you. So we have a living hope, but we also have an inheritance that's incorruptible. Notice how this inheritance is described. Incorruptible, undefiled, 
and doesn't fade away. All earthly inheritances can be corrupted. They can be defiled. They can fade away. But not this inheritance that's reserved for you in heaven. Last week, I read an article in the news about a Wells Fargo teller who's 29 years old, got arrested by the last name of Davis, and Miss Davis stole in the tune of $175,000 from what appeared to be a homeless customer. And the backstory was, one day she was working, here comes this homeless man with a bag, a garbage bag full of about $180,000 in cash. Could you imagine? Nobody knows where he got that cash. They couldn't deposit the money into the bank because he didn't have the proper identification. But this teller went and began to look up this customer in the database and found that he had several accounts. This homeless man already had several accounts. But again, they couldn't deposit the money because he didn't have the, the identification. So then she went and opened up some other accounts in his name and began to siphon off some of his money, just slow and steady, 3000 5000 until it reached $175,000, and ultimately she was caught. But she realized this homeless guy didn't check his accounts, and he didn't have a phone. He didn't access the internet. He wasn't going to get any alerts or any phone calls. He wasn't going to notice that somebody was, was taking his money. I kind of wonder where he got the money. Maybe it was inheritance. Maybe it was inheritance money. But no matter where he got the money, his money was corrupted, wasn't it? And things on this side of heaven can be corrupted so easy, right? I mean, the moment that you buy something brand new, that's the nicest it's ever gonna be. And then we're gonna strive to maintain and try to keep it in that, in that condition. It's corruptible. It fades, But yet, this inheritance we have from God, it it doesn't fade. And we need to be reminded of that as believers, as this world is crazy. In this world, you will have tribulation. In this world, there will be evil. Say, there is a reservation for me in heaven. The greatest part of our inheritance is not monetary value. The greatest is that we're the children of God. We're the sons and daughters of God. We're joint heirs with Christ. And in that comes tremendous blessing. Verse 5 is a great promise. Who are kept by the power of God through faith from salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We're kept by what? We're kept by the power of God. How do you know you're going to make your reservation in heaven? How do you know you're going to get there? Because it's not dependent on you. (laughs) That's why we know we're going to get there. Because we're kept by the power of God. His hand is upon us. He's going to complete that good work that he started in us. Jude 24, it's just one chapter, so it only has verses. Jude 24 tells us that he keeps us from stumbling and presents us faultless. What a great promise of God. He's going to keep you by his power. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little time, if need be, you be grieved by various trials. Notice the perspective that Peter has. He says, if for a little while we're grieved by various trials. No matter what the trials are in this life, they're only temporary. They're only going to last for a little while in light of eternity. Paul says you can't even compare the two. Just take a deep breath and go, oh, my trials are temporary. 
My trials only last for a brief moment of time. Even if they last for your whole life, it's just a little while. I like the honesty of verse 6. It says that trials hurt real bad. Grievous trials. That's a nice way of saying they really kick your can. Peter's saying, yeah, they're grievous and they hurt. And also, they're variety. They're very varied. They have great variety. I think that's what's so tricky about trials. They never come in the same shape and size. They're always different. As soon as you think you got it figured out, then there's a curveball that comes from a little bit different perspective, and you're like, oh, that one got me. That one really got me. So these are the things that come to us in life. In verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have living hope. We have an inheritance, but we also have purpose and trial. Purpose and trial. In our trials, we know that God's refining our faith. Trials are a test. We're tested by fire is what is taught to us in this verse. Tests, unfortunately, reveal what you know and what you don't know. You can't hide from a test. In the same way, a trial reveals our faith. Reveals, oh, I I, I have a lot of area to grow in my relationship with God and my trust with God. Or, oh, I'm surprised there's there's more trust in God in in this area. What is the trial saying about my faith? And we see that it's worth our faith getting refined so that it's to the praise and honor and glory of God. Remember, it's impossible to please God without faith. What's God really pleased with? Not performance, not how well you do your Christian resume, but trusting his character, trusting who he is, his promises, what he says. That's how he's glorified, is through faith. Faith's expressed in this in verse 8, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So you haven't seen Christ, but you love him. And you believe in him. And with that comes joy that can't be expressed and is full of glory. The last thing that we've received that our text highlights is salvation in verse 9. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you receiving the end of your faith. Church, there will be an end to your faith. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. We don't see God yet, but we believe in him because of the evidence that's presented. But as soon as we go home to be with the Lord, that's the end of our, our faith and that, and that reality because no longer is it something that is unseen. It's something we're now experiencing to the, to the fullest. Of this salvation that we've been given, the prophets from the Old Testament, they prophesied and they tried to search out the gospel. In verse 11, it says, Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was in them with indicating when he testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed, not to themselves, but to us, They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. These things which the angels desired to look into. 
May we never take for granted the salvation, the gospel that we've been given, that Christ died for our sins and rose again, that all who believe are saved. The prophets from the Old Testament, through the Spirit, they wrote down prophecies concerning the death and resurrection of Christ and didn't fully understand it and searched it out and wondered how this would come to be. Isaiah 53, specific about the crucifixion of Christ. Psalms 22. And we now have experienced the fullness of it. Imagine the prophets in the Old Testament seeing the Spirit of God indwelling the temple, but not knowing the indwelling of the Spirit, not personally being able to become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And now through the gospel, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we're experiencing what the Old Testament prophets only look forward to. And then the angels look at our salvation and they're interested. It says they look into our salvation. I liked in Daniel in our weekend study, if you happen to be here, where it described the angel as a watcher. You know, angels watching all these things take place. Try to imagine the angel's perspective. They saw Christ create the world speak everything into existence. They know that Jesus is God. Then they see Jesus born in a manger in Bethlehem of the Virgin Mary. Maybe he's a six-pounder. Maybe he's a seven-pounder. They're going, wow, this is the mystery of godliness. God in human flesh. He's all God, but he's all man. This isn't like any other baby that's ever been born. And watching all of the events of the life of Christ take place. Watching Peter be such a buffoon, right? Watching me be such an idiot. And seeing Christ die for us. And they're like, why did Jesus die for Eric? What? This is interesting. What love that God would send his son to die for this group of knuckleheads, right? Then to see us turn to God in faith. And the job of the angels is then to minister to us, to protect us, to bring messages, watch over, over believers, and then seeing the Spirit of God live inside of us. And the Holy Spirit is God. So they're, they're looking into the gospel, and they're going, this is a God thing. Only God could, could do this. We know that angels surround the throne room of God, and when we go home to be with the Lord, I'm sure we'll have a conversation with them. We'll go, I remember 1 Peter chapter 1 says that you guys look into this matter of the gospel, so what do you think? You're like, it still blows me away, you know? This is amazing. Amazing that God would, would love in, in this capacity. The next section from verse 13 to verse 25 is how we're to live. So, so we have hope in who we are. We have hope in what we've been given, but we also have hope in the life that God is calling us to live. Verse 13, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. In ancient times, the, the men would wear these, these long garments, and if they were to work or to run or be called to action, they would have to gird up their loins in order to, to do the work that was necessary. And that's the analogy that's been given here but it comes to our mind. Literally, this means prepare your mind for action. Prepare your mind for action. That's the first thing that we're called to in the way that we live, is preparing your mind to action. Church, the battle of the mind is so strong. It's where the ba battle is won and lost. 
The enemy wants to defeat our mind. The world system wants to defeat our mind. Our flesh wants to defeat our mind. And we've got to get our mind ready and engaged that there, there's going to be a real battle for despair or hope. You know, do I have a mindset of hope or do I have a mindset of despair? Is, is my mind ready for action? You, know, you think about different times where your mind is just ready for action. You know, maybe you, you hear a sound in your basement and it's the middle of the night and you wake up and instantly your mind is prepared and, and ready for action. Maybe it's a little bit more methodical. You know it's Monday morning and you've got a lot of work to do and you've prepared your mind for, for action. Maybe it's a hunting trip and you need to get ready for that hunting trip and be prepared for, for the elements. You're ready. Ladies, maybe it's a shopping trip and you, you know where you're going and what you need to find and you, you know where the sales are. And you're prepared. Your mind's prepared. That's the way God wants us to live our, our Christian life is prepare your mind for action. Be, be ready to apply biblical truth. And what does that mean practically? I think it means to, to be in the word of God and be ready to think biblically, to, to use short sections of scripture to guide our mind and guide our hearts. Speaking of Peter, in the moment that Peter rebuked Christ and then Christ instructed Peter, he said to him, you're mindful of the things of men, not mindful of the things of God. That's what got Peter in trouble. That's what gets us in trouble is we put our mind on the things of men. Church, right now in the midst of this service, how are you doing in this mental battle, in this mental game? Is Satan winning? Is the enemy winning? Is, is he telling you that nothing's going to change? Is he telling you that God doesn't hear your prayers? Is he saying, you know, why don't you just punt? Why don't you quit trying? Why don't you give up? Society, look at it, it's just so messed up and your life's so messed up and, and why don't you in a sense just go ahead and find, find some corner and, and spend your life away? That's right where the enemy would, would have us. So prepare our, our minds for action. Be ready. And then I love in this mindset in verse 13, it just says, put your hope, put your expectation fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's our expectation for the future? The grace of God, the character of God. God, I don't know how things are going to turn out, but I know that you're good. I know that you're gracious. So I'm putting my trust not in myself, not in my works, but fully upon the, the grace of God. And there's real hope in that, isn't there? Because we're not trusting in ourselves, we're trusting in his grace. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. So we're to live with a prepared mind, but we're also to live as obedient children. God's our Father, and he's calling us to obedience. As we obey him, we're underneath his umbrella of protection. It's the best place to be. There's blessing in obedience. It's an interesting analogy, though, because how many obedient children have you met? Were you an obedient child? I was not an obedient child, right? So I think we understand because we were once a child that it is very difficult to be obedient. And if we're honest, we oftentimes wrestle with our Heavenly Father, don't we? We're like, oh, I don't want to be obedient. I want to have it my way. I feel like being selfish. I, I feel like being stuck in, in where, where I'm at. And God calls us to be obedient. 
and especially in regard to this area of former lusts. The former lusts come knock on our door. We say, nope, I'm a new creation in Christ. I have a living hope, so I'm not going back to those old things. God's called me to a new life. Verse 15, but he who has called you is holy. You must also be holy in your conduct. So God is holy, and he's calling us to be holy. Now, holiness is wholeness. God is whole. He's completely organic, if you would. He's good. And he's calling us to holiness. He's calling us to be whole because he knows it's the best for us. So we have this loving father. What was Jesus' mission statement? I came to suck all the life out of you. I, I, I came to give you life and to give it more abundantly. Do you believe that about Jesus? He came to give us abundant life. The Father has abundant life. And so he's calling us to wholeness because he knows it's the best thing for us. He says, be holy for I am holy. In verse 17, and if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay in fear. How are you to live? How, what's your lifestyle to be? What's my lifestyle to be? And our stay here is one of, of fear, of reverence the fear of the Lord. The Psalms and the Proverbs talk about the fear of the Lord, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, to respect him, to love him, to to worship him. And I love how this all flows together here because we'll see in just a moment what really inspires the fear of the Lord. In verse 18, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. You've been redeemed. I've been redeemed. We've been bought back. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we weren't bought with silver or gold or stocks or any of those physical things. We were bought by the blood of Jesus to take us out of the aimless conduct of our fathers. Our moms and our dads for generations lived a certain way. and God redeemed us out of that through his blood. And that's what's declared in verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You see this unfolding message of the Bible where the sacrifices in the Old Testament led up to Jesus being crucified for our sin. Genesis 22, Abraham takes his son Isaac to sacrifice him on the altar. We find a sacrifice for a man there in Genesis 22. God provided a ram in the thicket. We go further to the Passover and God provided a sacrifice for a family. A lamb given for the whole entire family at Passover. Take the blood of the lamb and put it on your door and judgment will pass over. We go further in the law, one sacrifice for the whole nation of Israel on the day of atonement one day a year. So you've got a sacrifice for a man, then a sacrifice for a family, then a sacrifice for a nation. That could only cover sin. Then Jesus comes on the scene. John the Baptist sees his cousin, and what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Through the sacrifice of Christ, we've been redeemed, past tense. Before we ever had holy conduct, before we ever had this fear-based relationship with God. We realized our need. We trusted Christ for salvation. He saved us completely and fully. 
And now in response to that, we go, oh, Lord, Lord, I want to live for you. See, Christ's sacrifice is the greatest inspiration for respect. Because yes, we respect God because of his power and because of his holiness. And oh, he can bring the heat if he wants to. Makes us tremble. But you know what makes us tremble even more? Just God, you loved me while I was a sinner. You sent your son to die for me. You shed the precious blood of your son. That wins our hearts. We say, I respect you. I love you. You know? You think about if you needed an organ transplant, say your heart. We've had two men in our fellowship have heart transplants. They go up to Denver. They're up there for an extended period of time. They come back to the church. You're like, dude, you got somebody else's heart living inside of you. That's crazy. Are you the same person, right? Did you ask Jesus into your heart a second time? (laughs) It's the things pastors think about, I guess. But that's radical, isn't it? What if you had the opportunity to meet the family of the person who had died and chosen to be an organ donor, to give up, give up their heart? I think you would go into that conversation with the utmost respect. How much more so with God? How much more so with our Heavenly Father? It's his love that moves us to that place of holy fear. In verse 20, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So it was determined that Christ would die before the foundations of the world. It was always in the heart of the Father. When God created Adam and Eve, he knew that it would cost the death of his son. Who through him believed in God, who were raised, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. We trust in him. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. In the beginning of verse 22, there's a great balance here between man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. God calls us to obey, to choose with our will, to obey his word. And as we do that, he brings the work through his Spirit. A lot of times we're waiting for the work of the Spirit and God's waiting for the step of faith that's according to his word. God says, look, Eric, I've put this in my word. I want you to do this. And we say, I don't know. I can't do that. God says, that's where the faith comes in. You step out and trying to live my word and then I will give you the power of the Spirit. The other way that we're to live, we're to live with a prepared mind, we're to live as obedient children, and then we're to live in fervent love for one another. We're to be loving one another sincerely, earnestly, caring for each other. Love for each other is so important. We see the power of the word as this chapter ends. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. God's word lives and abides forever for all of eternity. That's something from this life we're going to be able to do in eternal life and study the word. <laughs> Imagine what our perspective of the word of God's going to be in eternity, in a glorified state, with Jesus teaching the Bible study. Come on. That's going to be awesome. Notice the power of the word. It saves. The word of God says being born again through the incorruptible word of God. 
God's word is living and powerful, and as you believe it, it provides salvation. In verse 24, all the flesh is as grass, and the glory of a man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. We see that this time of year. If you watch the grass closely, it's fading. In the springtime, it's vibrant and green and, oh, I'm alive, right? And in the fall, it says, I'm, I'm dying. I'm going, I'm going dormant. For some reason, the last few weeks right here at church, we've got a bunch of butterflies. I've never seen it. Been, been, been here 17 years, and especially on this back lot. And it's probably because Donnie has planted such good things over here on the, the back lot. They love the Russian sage and but even the butterflies, if you walk back there during the day, are like, I'm on my way out. You know, like, I don't know that I could ever catch a butterfly, but I could catch one of those, right? Maybe I'll go try tomorrow on my lunch hour. But they're, they're just fading. It's, it's that time of the year where, where they're fading. And God says that that's our existence as well. We're fading. A brand new baby. It's like, I'm alive, you know? Everything works, and I'm so happy to be here, and ah, right? And they just keep going like that in their childhood for a long, long time. They're just, they're just alive, and they're growing, and they're learning new things, and their body's just building and stronger and building and stronger. And then at some point, the tide turns. And I don't know when that magic number is, but you just slowly start to fade, right? And every morning, you look in the mirror and get out of bed, and there's just that reminder, hey... You're fading, right? (laughs) But here's the truth. The word of God abides forever. It lives forever. Church, when it comes to hope and living in hope, never stop investing yourself in the word of God. The word of God brings life. The word of God brings salvation. It's powerful. You're here on a Wednesday night. Praise the Lord. Keep investing in the word. There's always going to be an attack to spend time in the word of God because Satan knows it's powerful. We end in verse 25. Now, this is the word which, now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. The gospel was preached to you. Would you turn with me to one more verse as we close? Romans 15. Romans chapter 15. Verse 13. Romans 15, verse 13. And after I read this verse, we're going to break up into groups just real naturally, right where you're sitting and where you'll be standing. Because I think that it's really important for us to to pause and pray with what's taken place in, in Las Vegas. And God really hears our prayers and to specifically pray this uh, for those that are involved in this situation. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God wants us to have joy. He wants us to have peace. How does it come? It comes through believing. And as we trust our current world, our current situation personally to the Lord, in faith, he then provides joy and peace and hope. And not just a little bit of hope, 
but to overflow with hope. Later on in Peter's writings, Peter's going to say, I want you to be ready to give an answer, to give a defense for those that would ask of the hope that's inside of you. That is not primarily an apologetic verse. The word apologetic means to defend the faith. There's a place for that. That verse is written to a believer that has so much hope inside of them that an unbeliever comes alongside of them and says, why are you so hopeful? And you're prepared to give a defense. You're prepared to give an answer in that moment. That's to the degree that God wants to, to give us